All right, Hebrews chapter number one, as we begin our exposition now of the book of Hebrews. Of course, anytime we begin a new book of the Bible, uh, certainly we are uh, just going to allow the Lord to lead as far as uh, how quickly uh, we move through this. Uh, during uh, my drive, just to give you perspective today, uh, during my drive yesterday, I uh, listened to a number of sermons by Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I mentioned to you when we began our series on the book of Romans, uh, I told you that he preached through the entire book of Romans on Friday nights that he used to do. And I did not know this, but that, ser- that sermon series in Romans that he preached, he started in uh, 1955. And it took him 13 years. They were in one book of the Bible for 13 years on Fridays. So I have not yet reached a place where it's going to take us 13 years. And I don't anticipate Hebrews will take 13 years. But I make no promises on that. Because Hebrews, like many of the books of the Bible, uh, there is so much to unpack here. But this morning as we introduce this book, I want to just give you kind of the subject of the title we're going to look at, which really gives us the entirety of the whole here, which is the superiority of Jesus Christ. The superiority of Jesus Christ. All of our hymns this morning obviously were intentional in order that we might see that Christ is in fact superior to all others. He is superior even to the angels. And so when we think about the superiority of Christ, anytime you start a book of the Bible, I think it's important for us to understand that the main theme is Christ. Uh, But there are within that theme, there are a number of different uh, teachings and interactions that are taking place between the author of the book of Hebrews and the readers. Uh, This is one of those books that is often questioned as to the authorship. Uh, My suggestion to you is is to take it for what it is and don't try too hard to figure out uh, who the author is. I will confess to you for years and years and years, I was dogmatic that it was the Apostle Paul. I am not so dogmatic about that any further or any longer. Uh, There are some things that will come up in the book of Hebrews that kind of make you stand back and say, Maybe this wasn't the Apostle Paul. So don't be so dogmatic about that particular aspect of it. We do know that it's part of the inspired canon, which means if we don't know the author of the book, it does not mean that we cannot take it in its entirety. So it really doesn't matter. Uh, All that can be said is that we're not sure who that author is. The context of who the recipients of this particular book were, uh, there are different theories, there are different thoughts who the recipients were. Uh, Some have said, and I've heard this said before, that the book of Hebrews, I don't agree with this position, but that the book of Hebrews was only intended for Jews. In other words, if you are not a Jew, the book of Hebrews is not for you, which is really, really saddens me if that was the case. Uh, Because if this is just for the Jews, we are missing out on many of the great promises that we so uh, take for granted uh, if this is just for the Jews. Uh, Many, many believe that this particular book, letter, uh, was not written to a uh, one big main church, but it was written to a group that had separated um, from another church. I don't know anything about that position. That's just one of the things that are out there. 
I believe that it takes the position of, like many of the other books, there is a, the audience was a combination of Gentile converts and also a Jewish converts. The, the argument for the Jews being the only recipients of the letter is because of the, the emphasis that's placed on the Old Testament. Now, just because the emphasis is on the Old Testament doesn't mean that Gentile converts were not concerned about the Old Testament sacrifices and the things that primarily dealt with Old Testament Jews. So we're going to take the position, or at least I'm going to take the position here, that it's written to Gentile converts and Jewish converts alike. But really, when you look at the book of Hebrews, there are not many other portions of Scripture that so magnify who Jesus Christ is. And the beauty of this is found in a lot of those answers and a lot of those types and shadows and pictures we see in the Old Testament. The author makes mention of those and he attaches them to Jesus Christ. In other words, he confirms what those Old Testament sacrifices were really all about. So it is the the idea that Christ is preeminent. Christ is above all others. And so we know that the actual thought of God leads us to consider who Jesus Christ is. Now, in order to understand this sermon as we begin or this study as we begin, really those first four verses is really the great themes that set the tone for the whole book. You'll notice that this great theme of verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 pay particular attention to the glory and the preeminence and the exaltation of Jesus Christ, especially in verse number 3. Let's look at that verse again. Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. There is so much in verse 3 to unpack, it's almost mind-blowing to consider. Notice what it says about Christ. The brightness of His glory. If you want to see the glory of God, you only have to look to Christ. Look at the second expression. The express image of His person. If you want to see God, you want to see the person of God, you want to see His person, you look at Christ. Look at the power. Upholding all things by the word of His power. That's a reference to the power of Christ. And then this one just stuns me because it gives us the entire purpose of why Jesus Christ came and did what He did. When He, that's Christ, had by Himself purged our sins. You realize what Jesus Christ did was purged our sins. Without the remission of sins, there is no salvation. Without His work, notice it speaks in past tense. He purged our sins, removed them, made a purification for, made a cleansing of. Folks, I want you to understand this morning that the very central theme of the Christian faith is is surrounded by that thought. By Himself, Christ purged our sins. You take that out of the Bible, 
and you undo the entirety of Scripture. Almost everything we're going to talk about in the book of Hebrews, if there's no purging of sins, the entire Old Testament, the sacrifices, the shadows, they make absolutely no sense. But then there's also this finished action. Sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Do you realize no Old Testament high priest ever sat down? Why not? Because there was always more work to do. There was always an atonement that had to be made. Don't take lightly or take for granted this, the seated position of Christ. It shows us not only where He is located, that's important, but it also indicates very clearly that His work of purging our sins has already been completed. There is no other purging of sin that's coming. Where did that purging of sin take place? It took place on the cross. Remember, we've said often that Jesus Christ did not die on the cross to make salvation possible. He actually purged the sins of His people. That means if you're in Christ today, your sins were actually and effectively purged at the cross of Calvary through His shed blood. That was the purification process. And if we look at this only from the standpoint of the glory and the humility that it took Christ to go to the cross, we'll also see that the author here explains to us throughout the Scripture the, the strangeness, if I can use that word, the unusualness of the purging of sins taking place on a Roman cross, which was really not the ideal picture of where it should take place. We look at the cross today, and again, we often think about the cross as a symbol of Christianity, but the cross was not a symbol of Christianity in Christ's day. The cross was a symbol of crucifixion. It's only in modern generations, and again, I say that with a cross over my shoulder, it's only in modern generations that we began to, in churches, to display crosses. Nothing wrong with it, but the reality is, is those are, those are just, a, it's just a representation. But it doesn't give us any indication of what actually happened on that cross. And what happened on that cross was actually the purging of sin. And no matter what happens now, there can never be another purging of sins where the person who does the purging actually sits down and says, the work is completed. And yet that's exactly what Christ did. And that's what verse 3 is. We know the Apostle Paul uh, in epistles that he wrote deals with how strange and how the world looks at the cross and they think uh, that doesn't look like anything of a savior that looks like a humiliating death but do you realize that the purging of sins required the death of christ so hebrews the book the letter is primarily about the death of christ the superiority in his death the superiority of his purging, because it was not like the Old Testament priest. It was not like the high priest who went into the Holy of Holies. It was something entirely and completely different. The cross was the means, this is important, the cross was the means in which Christ used to fulfill all the Old Testament types and pictures. The cross itself had no saving power. 
The, the cross that Jesus hung on had no saving power to it. If you could somehow find those beams, it would be foolish for you to worship those beams. But you should worship the person of Christ who died on those beams because by dying on those beams, He was purging your sins. That's a pretty glorious truth. This purging of sins. I love the use of the word our. When I look out at you and you look at me, those who have made a profession and have confessed Christ, this is not just for the Jew. This is for any and all who've had their sins purged. Some of you might be here today and you don't realize yet that Christ died for you. You haven't come to the conclusion yet. But your eyes haven't been opened yet. Your ears have not been unstopped. And our prayer for you is that through the Spirit of God that that's exactly what He does. There was a time in our life when every one of us in this room were enemies of God. We were the enemy of God. You say, I never hated God. Before your eyes were opened, you were an enemy of the cross. You, were, you despised Him. You, you would even despise grace. But yet, it is this preeminent position that the writer of Hebrews puts Jesus Christ in. Christ comes, leaves glory, takes on a robe of human flesh, demonstrates great humility, and He comes to purify and cleanse the sins of His people. He does that on a cross. By doing that, He not only purges your sins and purges my sins, but He puts an end to all the Old Testament ritual. He puts an end to it and offers the only way of salvation. Today, if you are unsaved, you are unconverted, you are being shown the only way of salvation which is found in the purging of sins that's found in Jesus Christ. You're not going to find it anywhere else but in Christ. Not me, not the church, not any person seated here. You're only going to find salvation in Christ. And I say, run to Him, run to Him, and run to Him. Repent of your sins and believe in Christ alone. Jesus sits down at the right hand of God. His being seated at the right hand of God displays something. The right hand is a demonstration of glory. The right hand is also a demonstration that He is in fact the Father's Son. And it demonstrates the finished work of the cross. There is no other atonement that's going to be made. There is no one who can make a sacrifice for you. There is no one who can say today, if you will bring your sins to me, I will purge them. You cannot go and talk to a man. You cannot go and talk to a priest and, and ask for forgiveness through a veil, through a wall, which is just so radically opposite. Radically opposite of who Jesus Christ is. That man on the other side of that booth cannot, under any circumstances, purge my sins. He has no power to do so. If he said, I will purge your sins, I will offer a sacrificial lamb. I'll actually go get a spotless lamb and I will sacrifice and I'll purge your sins. It does absolutely nothing. Jesus Christ is the one and the only way of our sins being purged. So as we think about the author, whoever it is, writing these words, he's writing from a position 
of understanding, obviously, the superior position of Christ. So let's take the other side of this to kind of bring both points together. Christ is the introduction. He's the body and he's the conclusion, right? He's the entirety of a sermon. But what about man? Where does man fit in to the equation? Why was man created? First of all, let's ask why or how was man created? Man was created in the image of God. That's that's Bible. He's created in the image of God. And that man, when he's created, he is surrounded by the glorious works of a creator, right? He's he's placed in in a garden. That garden that Adam, for example, was placed in was filled with proof of God's power and filled with proof that there was, in fact, not just a God, but the proof of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When man was put in that garden, he was also put in a place where he was reminded of his absolute dependence upon God. How was he dependent upon God? Well, because God's the one that gave him permission to eat of all of the trees of the garden with the exception of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, Adam, you have free reign of every one of these trees, but that one... You can't touch it. That was a test. That was a test of obedience. Not unlike when we give our children, don't touch that. It's a simple test. There's many other things you can touch. There's many other things you can do. But what you cannot do is you can't touch that. You can't eat of that. Adam had all these things at his disposal. All these things did not keep Adam from putting aside God's commandment and brought himself under the condemnation of God. But at the same time, because of his sin, the Bible teaches us that we also fell in Adam. That's the doctrine of original sin. You're a sinner by Adam's fall. Not everybody believes in the doctrine of original sin. One of the most popular preachers of all time and most quoted and used in worship services today was Charles Finney. And Charles Finney did not believe in original sin. He believed that man was not a sinner in Adam. He also believed, shockingly, that Christ died. He died because there must have been some sin in him. Now, I don't know about you, but that is not bordering on heresy. That actually is heresy. And that statement I'm making would unnerve a lot of people because Charles Finney is a hero. But look it up. That's what he believed. The sinner was not God. The sinner was Adam. The sinner was Eve. Was God still rich in mercy when he revealed himself to Adam? Of course he was. Was he still rich in mercy when he he revealed himself to Eve? Of course he was. And still, for some reason, God was pleased to reveal himself as a way of salvation, even to somebody who didn't deserve it. But here's what's interesting. If you study the garden and you study what happened there, 
the promise that was being made about salvation, and this is a key point. I want you to, I want you to study this today because I think you'll find this fascinating. The promise was not a promise made to Adam, but rather a promise of a curse upon a serpent. Are you all hearing what I'm saying? There's a big difference here. Because what, what you believe about that, if you think the promise was all about Adam, you're going to go one way if you believe that it was about a promise or about a promise made to the bruising or a curse upon the serpent, that's going to lead you one other way. We immediately often jump to the conclusion and say, well, salvation is because of the promise made to Adam. No, salvation is as a result of the curse that was placed on the serpent. We're going to unpack, uh, unpack that as we go. Because understand this. The Bible says in Habakkuk that God's eyes are too holy to even look upon sin. And I want you to stop and consider that as well. How often do we think that God just makes an exception and He just looks upon sin just because He can? No, if you understand that, God did not make Again, listen carefully. God did not make a direct promise to a sinful man. That's not where the promise was made. His his eyes are purer than to behold iniquity. He cannot look upon sin. But in the curse upon the serpent, which is the devil and Satan, he reveals something. He reveals a great mediator between God and man. The promises that are being made are these. He describes the seed of the woman who would bruise the head of the serpent while his own heel would be bruised in the conflict. That tells us that there's not a universal salvation being offered here. Mankind is being divided into two different families. Again, what I'm, what I'm saying here this morning is, is so vitally important about which direction you're going with this. Because if you're going to go the direction and saying the promise was made to a sinful man, Adam, or was the promise made that the serpent would be cursed, it is going to set the course of your entire doctrine. It's going to go those two directions. We understand that the one is distinguished as the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman being the children of that family, the members of which the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is not ashamed to call His brethren. There are those within the Bible that Christ says, I am not ashamed to call them my brethren. But at the same time, we see a, one of the most horrific statements made. It, it, it humbles us when that same person who's not ashamed to call his brethren brethren, looks at others and says, you being the children of the wicked one, depart from me, I never knew you. Now I'm giving you a lot of information intentionally because you've got this dividing line that we have got to get established before we go anywhere in in this book. Because man has never been the center of the universe. Man will never be the center of the universe. 
As we heard earlier, Bible say, there are no little gods. You are not little gods. We are the children of God. There's a vast difference in the theology there. One's man-centered, one's Christ-centered for His glory. And the only one that's Christ-centered is the one that's about Him, not about us. So let's just deal today with verses 1 and 2 primarily that deal with the message of His purpose. So if we understand Christ's role, we understand man's role, what are these verse, What do these two verses tell us? Well, first of all, look what it says. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the world. So notice here that we have the first part of this. It's a proposition being made. There's the proposition that's being made that the Son is indeed that prophet. That prophet which has actually already performed that which God had set out to show. Those things would be shown in shadows. Those things would be shown and signified and proclaimed by the prophets. But through Jesus Christ, the will of God, the Father, is revealed to the world. So if if I want to see God's will, if I want to understand who the will of God is, I look to Christ. Okay? Does everybody see that? If if somebody says, "What's, what's God's will for this world? I point them to Christ. Because in Christ, I see the person. I see the entirety. I see God. Again, that's not negating the Trinity. The three distinct persons. You've got to be real careful about this today. To make, I, I can't believe how often I have to clarify to be sure that we don't move into this wrongful thinking of God taking on different forms with the same person. It's three persons. The Son, the, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit. It's not God changing forms into these people. And yet, it is in Christ that we see these fulfillments of these things. It's part of that proposition. So notice that it talks about that there was a declaration made all right, before Christ. That's what verse 1 is. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. So the prophecy, the prophets did not give the full picture. But they gave in various ways and at various times, they communicated what God was speaking. Okay, so God. First, very first word of the very first verse of the very first chapter of the book of Hebrews is God. And it's God who did this at sundry times in diverse manner. The prophets simply spoke whatever God instructed them to do. God spoke, the scriptures speak, And they speak the word of God. Now think about this phrase, at sundry times. This is an interesting word. I've never heard anybody in modern English language, or very often rather, use the word sundry. But sundry times has a reference here to how the plan or the purposes were going to be unfolded. It wasn't all done at one time, one shot. You know, it's interesting, when, when someone first gets converted, 
There's such a thirst, such a hunger for the things of God. Uh, part of this expression, guys, they want theology through the fire hose. Right? They, they, want, they want you to just open that thing wide up and they try to drink all that theology and they try to drink all their conversion and they just can't do it. Even the plan of salvation is that way. He, did, he didn't unload the whole plan in the Old Testament. He just started giving them pictures of the prophets and the types and the shadows. I don't think the human mind could even fathom and comprehend the entirety of the superiority of Jesus Christ like opening up that fire hose. So what did he do? God, at sundry times, gradually communicates the plan and purposes. Sundry, sundry times can also be referred to as there's a little here and a little bit there. So where was the first message or plan of salvation made? Now, depending on what kind of church you go to, someone might say, not until you get to the book of Matthew. I sure hope that's not the case. Let me rephrase that. I know that's not the case. The first mention of a gospel of a salvation was made to whom? Adam. Not in a promise to Adam, but in a promise of a curse being pronounced upon the serpent. So then there were statements made to not only Adam, Enoch, then there's a little bit more. Enoch with Enoch, the part of the covenant starts to be revealed. Then Noah comes onto the scene and there's a renewing of a covenant. Which, by the way, there was, with Noah's Ark, there was this visible representation of the salvation of believers, which very clearly was intended, and this makes some people mad, was intended to preserve only Noah's family. Okay? This is, this is difficult. There's nowhere in Scripture that says, as many as can squeeze on this Ark, get on. It was intended for the preservation of those, that family. Now immediately, all the people who say, well, that's unfair, that's unjust, that's not right. Who's saying that? Sinful man. There's a lot of things about God that if you look at it from the human perspective, just aren't, it's not fair. We've heard the argument, why does God send or allow, whichever term you want to use, anyone to hell. And again, I respond with the question, why did he choose to save any? Now, if you believe in man-centered theology, you believe because he saw my worth. He saw my value. He saw what I could bring to the table as far as propagating Christianity. And yet, nowhere in Scripture does God ever say, I did this because I needed you. He still doesn't need you. Adam's living proof of what every single one of us would do and still continue to do. You got all this, and you keep going to the one thing that you can't, that I said no. Why? Because sin is that prevalent. You see, the reality is when Paul taught about the law and the keeping of the law, he was pretty much laying it out there. There's absolutely nothing you can do. You can't keep that law. Just like Adam couldn't keep one single commandment. People say today, well, if I only had one, if that's all that God prohibited me from doing, I could do it. No, you couldn't. 
And even if you couldn't touch it, you'd lust after it. You'd say, God said I can't have that, and you'd still lust after it. You'd still commit some sort of sin. So what did God do? He prepared that ark. I haven't watched all of it. This is another side note commentary. But there was a movie made about Noah not too many years ago, Hollywood production. It's not accurate. It's not something you would show in a church and say, let's, let's watch Noah. This will help us understand Scripture. If anything, it's going to just make it even. It's just, it's, from what I've read, and it's horrible. Because it's not accurate. So where was the Savior first revealed? Well, in Genesis, we actually see that the Savior was first revealed as the seed of the woman. Eve, the emblem of the church, the mother of all believers, Galatians 4.21. We know she's first called woman because she's taken out of a man. It's remarkable because the name Eve means life. But do you realize her name was truly given to her after she had been one of the means of placing death upon all of humanity? We forget about Eve's role in the fall of man. Interesting that Eve was given that name after the fall. She was given that name, we just assume that's what it's always been. But she's been given this new name. It's the prince of life, the one who would abolish death, was the seed of the woman who gives the new name to Eve. Jesus later is described as the seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, the Jacob, his his, his generations would be limited to the tribe of Judah and finally to the house of David. So what do we see? We see the gradual manner in which God communicated his purposes of what? Of mercy. But his mercy, again, we're not going to get nearly as far as I want to get today, but that's okay. His purposes of mercy always have to correspond and agree with his other acts of divine procedure. In other words, he's not going to do something outside of who he is. One thing he will never do is overlook sin. He has never overlooked sin. You say, what about that person that's getting away with all their sin? They're not getting away with it. What about that hidden sin in my heart? You're not getting away with it. What, what about that thought that you're having right now that you shouldn't be having in church? You're not going to get away with it. It's got consequences. And yet, God could have... Think about how He created the world. I've, I've, heard, the, I've heard the skeptic and the textual critics of the day. You know, they have a hard time accepting the literal creation, but, but they're so obtuse in their thinking that they say, well... If God's so good, why didn't he just do it in one day then if he's that good? See, you're always going to have that person that's going to try to find fault with God. But do you realize that how God created the work of creation in those moments and how long it took, he was pleased in his purposes to accomplish it in six days. He didn't ask man, how many days would you like me to take to create? How many days would you like for me to do this? And it's the same thing. That's the way God works. It's a gradual unfolding. If you're into reading, I'm going to recommend a book. Not necessarily agree with all the doctrine in it, 
But there's a book by an author named Scroggy that's called The Unfolding Drama of Redemption. Now, before you go and buy that book and look at it, you've got to know it's about this big. It's about that wide. It's thousands and thousands of pages. And the author focuses on the unfolding, he calls it unfolding drama of redemption. And he starts all the way back in Genesis. I don't agree with all of his suppositions. I had to read that because I was forced to read it. Right? But, it's, but it's, 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 meant to, it's meant to point us to the unfolding of how this, this gradually happens. You know, things that are given to us gradually enable us to better follow the process. It, it prevents us from making a rash conclusion. One of the great dangers in our churches and in our Christianity today is to jump to a conclusion. Because we think we know it. But God has this wonderful way of continuing to unfold things. Not new revelation, by the way. Not something outside of Scripture. Like I've told you many, many times, if someone says God gave them a new message that's brand new, you've never heard it before, and it's not contained in the Scripture, just turn the guy off. Don't even give him the platform. He doesn't have a new revelation. The unfolding is taking place before us. And yet... God was pleased by the unfolding process. Think about all the illustrations in Scripture that we see an unfolding process. He talks of Jesus himself, talked about the herb of the field. He talks about the wheat and the tares. He talks about that it take time to grow before you'll be able to determine which one is which. Remember the disciples, were, they, were so, they were so on fire to say, do you want us just to rip out all the tares? There's a story in that too. But just like the corn comes up, there's a blade, there's first a blade that comes up, then there's an ear that comes up, and then there's full corn in that ear. We were marking down here around the corner on Petrie Road and, and how quickly, it, almost like overnight, the corn all came up around that corner. We, I mean, we, I drive by there every single day, and one day I just noticed, I said, when did it get like that? It's the process. But do you realize that there's not a single blade of corn that comes up without God's hand in it. You said, no, that's just good farming. No, that's God. Because even the herbs of the field are subject to the purposes of God. So when you talk about Jesus Christ, you can't unfold all that he did in just a single fire one shot. But what you can do is you can determine almost right away he is superior to all others. So not only was it done at different times, but it was also done in different diverse manners. So not only different portions, not, even, not, ever, not just different types, but in different ways. Study the Bible. You'll see that at times, angels were given the task of delivering a message. There were voices there were dreams. There were visions. Those were different modes in which the prophets would receive their revelations. Those are not necessary today because you have a completed copy of God's words. We don't need a vision. Just like we read in Mark, Mark today, they don't, they don't, we don't need a sign. The obsession with the second coming, the obsession with end times. Everybody wants a sign. The Bible is very easy. What we're supposed to be doing with that? 
You're supposed to be looking for the return of Christ, who is the very purpose of everything that we do. Whether we go through the tribulation, whether we don't go through the tribulation, whether we this, whether we... Do you realize that for the child of God, it doesn't make one difference at all? And the only thing we try to do is we try to make our human self feel better, saying, could God really let his people go through the tribulation? Would he do that? And I say to you, he saved a wicked sinner. But somehow we humanize it to say, God would never allow me to go through that. That just shows how prideful we are. Because it really doesn't matter. The part of us that's worried about that's the human side. If you could only get a glimpse of glory, you would not worry about anything that we often are encumbered by on this, in this life. But there were different modes. In times past refers to old times. That's just a reference that there had been a, there was a moment in time when the spirit of prophecy that he's talking about ceases. Remember that from the end of Malachi until we get Matthew, at least 300 years, there were no other prophets. So in 300 years, God had nothing else to say. But he wasn't silent. You see, we're always looking for something new. And yet, the author of Hebrews says, where you need to be looking is looking at Christ. And then let's just look at this final phrase. Spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Those term fathers includes not just the patriarchs of the Jewish nation, but all the prophets by whom God had communicated his will from the very beginning. I don't know exactly what it was like to be a prophet. I don't know exactly what it was like to hear the voice of God, you know, how they understood. I don't fully understand the inspiration of Scripture because if you really think about God-breathed Scripture, the Holy Spirit breathed out, inspired them to write, but at the same time, they wrote infallibly, but their own personalities were not lost in the process, but it wasn't really their words, but it kind of was. You all following me? It's this mystery that says, wait a minute, but this is the inspired word of God written by human authors. Yes, the difference is those human authors were the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So then we get the idea, well, I'm just going to write my own copy of scriptures. You can't. Because the canon, the books of the Bible, Bible closed. There's no, there's no second edition. God has already communicated he did it one way through the prophets, through the Old Testament types, through the scriptures. And now, and finally, how has God communicated his will? Through Jesus Christ. Folks, you're going you're to encounter people all your life who are not going to fully be able to comprehend and understand what you who have sat under solid Bible teaching, whether it's here or wherever it is for years, are comprehending today. And can I just as a side note, just tell you to be patient with people and quit looking for flashing in the pan salvation and begging for people to come and just give their heart to Jesus and just unfold things. You say, but what if they die before? God is sovereign in all things not just in life, but he's also sovereign in salvation. And the Bible says he will lose none of his. All you and I are called to do is to give the gospel. We're called to give the message. We're called to unfold it, to give what God's already said. 
Don't try to find new ways to tell the same message. God doesn't need us, remember? God has used prophets. He's used shadows. He's used types. But here's where we'll finish. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. The readers of the letter would have really taken that personally because they would have said, wait a minute. He's personally spoken to us in his son. I want to challenge you today as we close for this morning to think about how Christ himself in these last days has revealed himself to you. We'll deal with that second verse next week and, and, and dig even deeper into exactly what the writer was talking about here. But think about what those last days really are. We're all living in a season and a time when we think, could it be tomorrow? Could it be today? Again, I would caution you, don't be worried about the timing of the day and the hours in which things are happening. But have you listened to what God has spoken to you through, by, through his son? Because if you want to know God, if you want to know God, we're told you have to look to Christ. And it's in Christ and his superiority that we see the absolute truth. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we want to thank you for this passage of scripture this morning and all the words that have been read and the hymns that have been sung. But Father, I pray now that you would take these truths in which we've heard and that we would give heed to them. We would beware of letting them slip. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us in this wonderful unfolding plan of redemption that began all the way back even before the garden in that eternal covenant that was made before the foundation of the world. Lord, I pray that we would become less and less self-centered and man-centered. And may our eyes continually be turned to the glory and the preeminence and the superiority of Jesus Christ. Father, as we have just begun this journey in this book, Lord, I pray today that the Spirit would give us understanding and that we would leave here today with just a, 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 even just a small increase in our understanding and in our adoration for who you are. Lord, I pray that we would remain humble, never take for granted the wonderful gift of understanding, but Lord, also continue to increase our burden for people around us, our family, our friends, loved ones, co-workers. May we not become selfish with the gospel. We are all called to evangelize. It may not look the same. It may not sound exactly the same. But if we are in, in fact in Christ, we cannot help but speak the things in which we have believed. Lord, strengthen us, strengthen our faith, increase our faith. May the times of lapses in our faith grow fewer and fewer. May we get our eyes off the earthly, temporal things of this world and turn them to things which are to come. 
Maybe look at every human being, not just as a person, but maybe look at them, everyone who has a spirit, everyone who has a soul. Every single individual was made in the image of God. It is not for us to determine who or what deserves or when to hear the gospel. We simply proclaim, and we know that in your sovereignty, you will save all that you have determined to save. Father, we thank you. And it's in Christ's name and for his sake, I ask these things. Amen. If you would, let's go ahead and stand together. We're going to finish with a reading from the First Peter chapter 5 as a way of our benediction. And I want to make one announcement when we get to the end here. But First Peter chapter 5, the Apostle Peter gives us a great reminder here of some of the things that we've already heard this morning. And of course, Peter uh, wrote from the perspective um, also uh, of a Jewish perspective. So his understanding of the things that he and the conclusions he came to were also after a series of unfolding. But in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse number 6, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a little while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The God of all grace.